From the McKinsey Global Institute, it's Forward Thinking with Michael Chewy and Janet Bush. Michael, do you know anything about the Franschet Valley in South Africa? Isn't that part of the wine country down there? Yes, and the history behind it is fascinating. So the wine expertise came to South Africa with French Huguenot refugees who were expelled from France in the 17th century. And it's just one example of how migration can spread knowledge and know-how around the world that our guest today discusses. That's super interesting. I love learning pieces of history like that. And there's certainly a lot of evidence that immigrants are vital to the transfer of technological knowledge and innovation. I look forward to hearing more. So welcome to our podcast, Danny. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So I'd like to explore a little bit about your background and your education. I was interested to read that you describe yourself as Venezuelan and Israeli. So tell us more about that. Yes, I'm a dual citizen. I have both citizenships. I was I was born and raised in Venezuela. I was born to a family. My grandparents were, were Holocaust survivors. They, they, they were refugees and they ended up in Venezuela, one of the few, few countries in the world at that time that really had some sort of open door migration policy. And then being raised within the, the context of the Jewish community, having a Jewish background, I also felt a connection with, with Israel, the country, and, and I decided to immigrate myself. Then I moved to the US to complete graduate studies. So, you know, I've been moving a little bit, quite a bit. So you really are a citizen of the world. <laughs> Hopefully, if there was such a passport, I would definitely be in line to, to take it. So your first degree was in systems engineering, but then you studied economics. So what drew you to economics? I, I was thinking it's a kind of system engineering. That's a great question. I don't know when that, you know, I think that as many people, you know, as all of us, when we go to college, it's, it's a really tough decision to make. What is it that you want to do the rest of your life? I went that route because I felt, you know, for kind of very, not very deep reasons. You know, I, I, I wanted to be an engineer. It was kind of, there was not such a variety of things to study in Venezuela. And I was good with computers. So, you know, I, I went that way. Th that gave me a lot of math and a lot of coding experience. And, and that definitely played a role in helping me to become an economist. I, I, at that point, at that point, when I decided to go to grad school, I was really between being a political scientist or an economist. I had a conversation with somebody who 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 became a really important mentor in my career later on, who told me, you know, you had so much math as an engineer. Like, why don't you, you know, go for economics and you'll able to apply a lot of the quantitative methods and so on. So I did, and and so it really helped me, I think, to to see things from a different perspective. So so I I kind of agree with your with your premise there. So it's obvious you love economics. In case our listeners don't know, you run your own podcast called Economics on Zoom Getting Coffee. That was a great title. What do you enjoy about running a podcast and actually talking about economics? Yeah, so it was my COVID baby to, to, to do something where people were kind of looking for, some people were looking for for or getting more into social media and, and maybe listening to things. So I decided there was a space for trying to bring in, you know, a network of academic uh, economies that I've been in touch with since, since I'm one of them and try to translate their findings on the, to the general audience and, you know, the, the, the actual implications for policy and also for just public conversations. And, and, and it's been fascinating. It's in its second season. So, yeah, thanks for the shout out. I invite everybody to, to, to take a listen. 
Well, it's interesting because I just heard in, in Britain a new podcast explaining economics is coming. And I was thinking, yeah, I mean, turbulent times. Everybody wants to understand what the hell is going on, you know? Exactly. And and I think it's very hard to explain, but, you know, it's, I think it's good to, to try and get as many as different perspectives as one can. Well, it, it is pretty fundamental to everything, I think. So you you describe your research as sitting at the intersection of international economics and economic development. What do you mean by that? I mean, I think the most fundamental question in economics, if not in science at large, is why is it that some countries are rich and some countries are poor? We don't really have you know, the one answer to that. That question started with the with the rise of economics as a science, like Adam Smith in the late 1700s. That was one of the fundamental questions he wrote about in, in the Wealth of Nations. And, and there's a lot, a whole lot of theories and a lot of empirical work that looks at very different components of this question. And probably the answer is like around a few different things. But one of them that is no less important is really what's happening overall in the international economy. Because a lot of the today and, you know, for the past decades, even at different rates, but but a lot of what engages countries, whether they're emerging economies or, or rich economies, they're all in some in some way or form interacting with the rest of, of the world, right? Through trade, through capital flows, and of course, through migration, which is a topic that I've been focusing quite a bit. So I think that, that, that what I, I think that that reflects the fact that I'm really looking at how these international flows are really affecting and perhaps a driver of development for, for, for the countries that are on that route to, to become richer. This is interesting. We published late last year a, a, a huge report called Pixels of Progress, which identified pockets of wealth and poverty all around the world, but also even within countries, just to, to map it, to try and get to those factors that you know create wealth or don't create wealth. Fascinating, yes, and 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 as you said, I mean that a lot of it is cross-country, a lot of it is also within countries. Regions are very different, so a lot of those frameworks can, to some extent, be applied to within-country dynamics. But it's a little bit of the idea that you know there, there's a lot of complexities around. It's not only what a government can do within its jurisdiction, but it's also the, the you know what's happening generally in the, with the flows that that are part of the global economy. Well, I think I know the answer to this question, but I was going to ask you. You you focus on two big themes in your work. One is technology and knowledge diffusion, and one is migration. And of course, now knowing a little bit more about your background, I can see where your interest has come from. But but tell us why those two themes. Yeah, I, I, I do have to say it was by accident. I don't think I, w- I went into academia knowing that I want to become a migration scholar. But, you know, maybe my subconscious played a role. I can't rule that out. But but I think that this really goes, but your question really goes back to, to what we were saying just a minute ago. There's one thing we know about what, con- what makes countries rich and what makes countries poor. Th- this stylized fact, like everybody who has had like, you know, a course in economics or has read some of the, of the basics, like knows that 60% of what explains cross-country income differences is explained by productivity differences, Right. And, and this is like good and bad news, right? Because it's good news because it means that we know what is, you know, what really explains income differences. It's productivity. 60% of income differences are productivity. So all the other things that we know about, like human capital, such as schooling or physical capital accumulation or institutions or a bunch of things that we found ways to measure them, they're only 40%. The other 60% is productivity. So, so that's great news because, you know, we nailed it. We know what it is. 
But then the obvious next question is like, what is productivity? And that's where we say we don't really know. <laughs> productivity is, as Moses Abramovitz coined it in, in the 1950s, he said it's, it's a measure of our own ignorance. Because it's essentially how economists look at productivity. It's essentially everything that we can't measure that it still explains the income of a country or a firm, right, or for or a person. So then this poses a, a, a big challenge, right? Because, you know, it could be technologies, it could be knowledge, it could be know-how. It could be a lot of things that, that we also know from another literature that it really is really, really difficult to transfer those across countries. So technologies are really difficult to transfer, but depend on which technology we're talking about, right? Because when you think about a patent, which is essentially a technology that is codified, everything is written down, well, we can put that online on Wikipedia and then everybody can have access to it. But I can assure you that if I read for the next two days, what, what is the technology that I need to know to become a dentist? I'm not going to succeed. I'm not going to be able to, you know, to deal with somebody else's cavities on my own, right? There's another type of knowledge, which is the knowledge that can be, the knowledge that is embedded in goods, such as a calculator, right? A calculator is such that, you know, you don't need to really know how to add and subtract if you have a calculator. Those, that type of knowledge is also very easy to flow because you just put it in a container and, you know, cost, the trade costs have really gone down a lot over the past decades. So that really is not a great candidate to explain the disparity between countries. I've been focusing on the third type of knowledge, which, which is what many people call tacit knowledge. Tacit knowledge is this knowledge that resides in our brains, that is hard to acquire, is hard to transfer. It really needs a lot of human interaction. So the dentist is a good dentist, not because he or she read all the manual on how to become a dentist, but because he or she spent a lot of hours, probably next to another dentist in residency, right? Kind of learning this, you know, learning that, you know, what what is it each tool is good for, but also when you have a complexity, how do you do it? How do you move your hands? How do you, like, there's so many of these tacit knowledge things that, that a dentist has that, that, that you can't read in Wikipedia that a pilot has when the pilot is flying a plane, right? None of us want to get in a plane where the pilot says, hey, don't worry, I had A's in all my physics grades, but it's the first time I'm flying, so I wish you a pleasant flight. That's not going to be, nobody's going to stay in that plane. So when we narrow down this type of knowledge, when we talk about this type of knowledge, it, it seems like a good explanation of why there's so much disparity in knowledge and productivity and technologies across countries because this knowledge is really hard to transfer and acquire. It's very costly. We don't know exactly how. So, so, so I, I came to this thinking that if this is the case, I came to this thinking that if this is the case, that there is this type of knowledge that is really hard to transfer and move around and it really needs human interaction, then we must be able to see some of this knowledge moving when we see movement of people right? Move, migration is perhaps the most extreme example of labor mobility, even though it's very low in the world in, in terms of shares, like only 3.5% of people in the world are leaving a country other than the one they were born. Even though it's a small share of people who are actually migrants, only 3.5% of people in the world today are leaving a country other than the one they were born, they still could actually show, you know, th those flows can still give us a lot of information. And a lot of the research that I've been doing is to, is to first of all, document this idea that, that knowledge really 
um, moves very slowly and it's really hard to transfer. And, and, and the implication that it has for firms, for instance, or for countries as a whole. And then also moving to the idea that, that when we see people moving, we also see that these best practices and this knowledge and this technology moves with them, having a real impact. And by real, I mean like a huge impact, such as changing the structure of, of exports of a country, having a real impact on the countries that they arrive to and also the countries that they come from. So that's a little bit the connection between the two. Yes, so migrants are the channel that hits both your technology transfer and your knowledge transfer and your productivity boost. So you co-wrote a paper called Migrant Inventors and the Technological Advantage of Nations, and you found that countries are between 25 and 60% more likely to gain advantages in patenting in certain technologies if there's a doubling in the number of foreign inventors that specialize in those technologies. So that is a big number, as you say. Yeah, and, and, and what that paper is looking is, is, is a good example of what we're talking about. What we're seeing there is that when inventors move from a country that has you know, a, a technological advantage in patenting water technologies, for instance. So let's say Israel, because Israel has a good technological advantage on, on these water technologies. And, and then you have people moving from Israel to, let's say, France. Um, what we see in this example is that France starts patenting from scratch, or inventors in France start patenting from scratch patents within that technology class, in, in water technologies, right? And we attribute this to the flow, to the migrant flows, that, that these immigrants, these inventors were really exposed to technologies that were you know, that their home, their country of origin was a leader in, and they're bringing that know-how to another country. And then we also see that when people move from one country to another, country A being a, a, a competitive exporter of wine, let's say, they move to another country, and that country also becomes, eventually, 10 years later, a, a competitive exporter of wine to the global markets. Um, the, I think the best example of that, by the way, is, is Franschok Valley in South Africa. I don't know if some of our listeners have been there, but Franschhoek is this little town about 40, 50 kilometers from Cape Town, which was founded in the 17th century by French Huguenot refugees who were expelled from France by King Louis XIV, and they settled in many parts of Europe. Some of them actually went to South Africa. Franschhoek means the French corner. Um, so they settled there, and interestingly enough, today, these little town is is home to some of the most renowned wineries in South Africa that export wine to the rest of the world. So that's a kind of an anecdotal story about, about this phenomenon. So is one reason for the productivity boost that migrants move from low productivity to high productivity locations? Well, that, 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 that's a great question. And, and, and that's something I, I guess one way to look at that question is is to ask whether what we're finding is really they are they actually moving the productivity or they know or the know-how or they're actually or, or they're kind of actually following the opportunity and and you know we we, we as economists I, I appreciate the question because we as economists are very obsessed with causality versus correlation so so in those studies that you're mentioning we do a, a great deal of work to try to 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 convince the reader that that it's more of the latter that actually it's not that they're following up the former that they're not following opportunities but actually they're actually moving the know-how but but just to give you an example of of one piece of work that we really try to nail that down is one in which we look 
at Yugoslavian refugees in the 1990s who escaped from the from the the, 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 the very bloody war in, in in you know the former Yugoslavia back in the in the early 1990s. A lot of them Bosnians, but not only, also Croatians and Serbians. A lot of them settled in Germany. And, and that gave us like a, a, a what what we call as economies a natural experiment because it, it has all the components of 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 people who were for, you know they were forced to move they didn't choose to move but also when they were in Germany they actually had a lot of access to the to the labor markets so they could actually work wherever they wanted and after after a period of time when the war ended they were essentially asked to they, they were repatriated they had to go back their permission to stay in Germany was ended. A lot of them actually went back to their home countries. And what we see there is that in when you take Yugoslavia, the Yugoslavian countries after the war, the industries that performed the better in terms of exports and productivity and creation of firms and value added and a bunch of other things are the same industries where these refugees were working at while in Germany. And there we also do a lot of you know fancy statistics to make sure that, that we are actually capturing a, a causality but but overall, this is a good. Um, I think it's a good example of how we are actually trying to deal with the first one. So, if we take that example and bring it up to date to the mass migration out of Ukraine, I mean, where is there a huge opportunity there? Not only for the countries that receive the refugees, but also for Ukraine when the war ends, for when it starts rebuilding. Absolutely, I I, I think that um. In the case of Ukraine, for instance, also in the case of Venezuela, perhaps even in the case of Syria, this diaspora, these refugees who, who, who might or might not come back, they might even settle where they want to settle, and that also could create a lot of gains. But, but this, this diaspora could be a huge force, and it will be a huge force, I'm, I'm certain, of the reconstruction of the countries. And, and, but, but, but at the end, it will really depend on policy. Because we, when you know, when we think about these flows, our minds go straight into humanita- the humanitarian aspects, right? How do we help them at the very beginning to get the help they need, the, the you know, the, the the health needs that they that they have, how to cover them, housing, etc. And and that's important. It's super important. Right? I think that has to be done. But I think we're, we we have less focused as, as as an international community, I guess, in the integration part. Because I think that what, 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 what will really maximize their potential to give back to their home country will be the more, the, you know, the more integrated they are and the more that they can reach their own potential wherever they are. So, so that's, that's a, an essential part of my, of my research agenda going forward, how to promote integration. And there, firms have a role. Government has a role. There, there's a lot of actors that have a role. But we, we really need to be in that mindset that that the best thing that can happen to Ukraine in the future is if its refugees are able to integrate as much as possible wherever they are and to reach their full potential wherever they are. And later, those gains are going to show up in their exports, in their investments, in their know-how, in a bunch of different measures, in their innovation, for instance. Whether many of them actually decide to come back or many of them decide actually to stay, we're still, I, I'm, I'm, I'm certain that we're still going to see a lot of those benefits. So th- there are, of course, two types of migration. One is voluntary and one is forced. And I think back in 2016, MGI research said that 
more than 90% of the world's cross-border migrants were voluntary migrants. They were moving for economic reasons. And then the remaining 10% were asylum seekers and refugees. But then, of course, we've had waves, huge waves of forced migration from Syria, from Venezuela, and now from Ukraine. So do you think that the proportion, the share of voluntary versus involuntary has changed? Yeah, I mean, I think that we we, we can definitely check the numbers. I think that we're talking about more than 30 million who are forcibly displaced. But in the big scheme of things, yes, I think we're still seeing that the, the majority of people are migrants who, you know, chose to to make the move. And and the number of refugees is 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 the smaller share because nobody wants to be a refugee, of course. Like it's, a, you know, the, the, these people are forced. Um, but unfortunately, that that number is coming up actually. So are the the scale of the economic benefits, or even the kind of economic benefits, do they differ according to whether it's a voluntary migrant or an involuntary migrant? I guess it is to do with integration. Yeah, I mean, it, it will very much depend on the country. And, and, you know, it's a process that could take years. It could take, not everybody knows also how to start this process and, and not everybody knows that they can actually comply with this. Um, not everybody knows that they can comply. So the aspiration is that wherever they are, it doesn't matter if you call them refugees or not. They're able to access the labor force without any restrictions. They're able to f- move freely, you know, to be able to 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 be in in a city or in a community where they ca- they can actually reach their full potential. There should be these are a little bit the best practices of integration, I guess. But th- there should be some efforts by authorities to to facilitate the process of of credentials of giving credentials to professionals, and and. Uh, and of course, also to be able to give them the right documentation so that they can participate in the economy at large. And and countries differ on a lot of these things. I think that that's why we, we're, there's, still, there's still a lot of research to be done on, on the best practices of integration. And some, sometimes countries react late. So you have the case of, of, of Syrians in Turkey, for instance, which for the first few years of their stay there, they were not allowed to actually f- work you know, in the formal economy. They didn't have like a, a work permit. People are going to work anyway, so they they went on and worked. Many of them went on and worked in the informal sector. By the time the authorities realized that this was it was not their preferred outcome, and they actually issued work permits, inertia played a role, right? So it was really hard after people had certain jobs in the informal sector to really move to the formal sector. So so a lot of these practices we, we we're trying to understand yet, and 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 sometimes they. They are significantly, I would say, driven by the fact that we tend to think that refugees are going to be there only for a few months or a few years, whereas in practice, refugees actually tend to stay much longer than what we think because wars tend to last for longer than what we think. And 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 I think that that's part of the issue. Like, how do we think long term? What do we need to do to give these these refugees, whether we want to call them refugees or not, but the tools to integrate as much as possible? So what role can firms play in, you know, integrating migrants, whatever kind they are, to get the most economic benefits? Yeah. Well, firms are essential, right? Because because at the end, most people will work in firms, will be employee of firms. And there, there's a few steps that government play a role to facilitate that. The first and foremost, to have people, give, give people the work permit so that they can actually work in, in these firms. But, but there's one that usually goes under the radar, 
which is uh, particular when we're talking about refugees that, that end up fleeing and, and staying perhaps in bordering areas or in places that are lagging behind in terms of infrastructure or in terms of, you know, firm capacity and, and has to do with, with, with funding. So, so usually when we see those instances, we see a lot of funding flowing to humanitarian aspects, which again is important, is crucial, is central. But we also need to think about how can we have some of that funding to, 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 to boost dynamism for the local economy. Obviously, integration is absolutely crucial, not only for the migrants to, to, to help them on their way, but obviously to secure those economic benefits. Have you seen a model of excellent migration policy stroke integration policy? I do feel, in particular, perhaps my 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 connection to Venezuela makes me focus on 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 this, and and I do th- I do think very of hi- very highly of the Colombian model. Colombia has received about two million Venezuelans over the past five six years. That's about four five six percent of the population, so it's a huge flow. A lot of them actually entered undocumented, and and Colombia I think has understood that that this could actually represent a huge gain for them as a country. And at, the, at, at all levels of government that I've been interacting with, from the you know, highest levels to actually bureaucrats in, in, in local governments, they realize this. And, they, and, and they're actually, you know, you hear them speaking, it's, it's very emotional when you hear them speaking, saying like, how can we help our Venezuelan brothers and sisters in integrating better? They understood that documentation is crucial. So they actually have a program where they gave a 10-year visa with full access to the labor force to all 2 million Venezuelans. They've, uh, they've created, working with the international community, they've created like centers all around the country where people can can be helped to, to get access to the labor force. And, uh, you know, they've done some of these programs to actually provide funds to, to through the Deve- National Development Bank to, to firms in different places that, that have a high flow of, of immigrants and refugees to, f- f- to invest. I think there's a lot to learn from their experience, and I hope that other countries will continue to learn from, from what they're doing. And have you been able to measure the benefits to Colombia? Well, we found three important stylized facts in, in a number of papers. First, this process of, of giving them a regular visa did not have any adverse effects on the labor market of locals. So no jobs were lost. No wages were, went down because of this. Second, we found an interesting story, I think, that, that relates to women, female empowerment, which I think is, is a very pretty story because we're finding that once these immigrants receive a regular visa, we start seeing an increase in the reports of crime, not the number of crime, but the reports of crime, particular of domestic violence and, and sexual crimes. And this is driven by Venezuelan women. So, so it tells us one interpretation, which, which, which is, is the one that we, we, we think is the right one, is that it, it's empowering Venezuelan women who now, with the, you know, having a regular visa, they actually feel empowered to go to the authorities and, and, and make claims. So I think that that's a very important angle that we tend to overlook a lot. And finally, we have a study on entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship is this thing that, you know, we're still trying to understand what it is and, and, you know, what makes somebody an entrepreneur. But I think something is clear that, you know, to be an entrepreneur, you need to be able to, to you need to be certain, have enough certainty that you're going to be able to appropriate all the returns that of the investment you're doing today. And that might take 5, 10, 15 years, who knows. 
And, and, and what we see is that people who actually got this visa, who became a, re a regular resident through these visa processes, they increased the rate of entrepreneurship by a factor of 10. Let, let that sink in for a second. Wow. By a factor of 10, putting them at par with the rate of entrepreneurship of Colombians. So, so they were creating firms. I actually went to Colombia and saw some of these firms. They're small firms. They are perhaps stores, they are restaurants, they are bakeries, they are like hairdressers, but they're firms that, you know, are, are formal, they're, they're created in the business registry of the country, they, they bring dynamism to the economy, and I think that this is part of that policy of, of, of trying to understand how can we make the right policy context to, to help these people reach their full potential, and this is a case in point. Yes, I mean, many countries who see these waves of, of refugees get frightened. The people get frightened for their jobs and whatever. Does that undermine the case for skills-based migration, you know, economic migration? As an economist, I have a bit of a mea culpa that I think that for, for many decades, we economists, when we were thinking about migration and refugees, we tend to focus, for the most part, on, on questions regarding labor markets, right? Whether migrants are going to take our jobs or not take our jobs or increase our salaries or decrease our salaries and what's the size and so on. And, you know, those are interesting questions academically because, you know, you have the labor, the labor supply and the labor demand and you move the labor supplies. I mean, it, it's a nice way to, to kind of look at a theoretical prediction, for the most part, these studies have shown that there, there's very little effect in terms of, or, or there's very little displacement. So sometimes there is a displacement which is statistically significant, but economically it's not that significant. We're talking about very, very small numbers. But, but by, by doing this, I think we really forgot about two main aspects. First of all, that not all refugees and migrants are the same. They bring very different skills. A lot of, a lot of, sometimes they bring diversity and and skills that we didn't have before, and this is important from an economic perspective because that means that they are often more complementary than substitutes to other workers, right? And and you know, think about it for for listeners. Like if you if you want Americans to more Americans to be doctors and engineers, you also gonna need Americans or people who live in America who are gonna be cab drivers and cooks. Because an engineer needs a cook and a taxi driver, and a doctor needs a nurse, <laughs> and needs a, a, you know, and, and and needs somebody who 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 can make sure that every tool is sterile and and well cleaned, right? So so the way we uh, economists think about the economy, I think, is transitioning to to really look at the skills, a look at the complementarity of the skills, and understanding that what we produce is not is is not only based on one equation where you know you just have a number of workers and a number of firm of of capital of machines but it's really complementarities between workers and in that sense migrants can play a huge role because they can come and really complement other workers make them actually better off and and there's actually some research on that by my colleague Giovanni Perry who's a professor at UC Davis who has shown by looking at a long term perspective by looking at refugees in Denmark, for instance, refugees coming from, from Yugoslavia or even more recently from Syria, etc., people who are usually, particularly people looking at people who might not have a college degree or even a high school degree. And, and he has shown that when these people flow into the economy, the locals actually tend to do better. 
they experience is occupational mobility upwards because they, that allows them, I mean, it puts some competition in the labor market, but that allows them actually to move towards skills and tasks where they actually can have an advantage such as the language, for instance, right? So, so if you actually take a look at the long-term effect or medium to long-term, you, you tend always to see that migrants actually are, are a driving force of dynamism. And even when you're look, focusing on, on, on people without college degrees and, and with high school degrees, you still see there's some movements which are, which are for the most part positive for the economy. So when you put it all together, the productivity effect, the technology diffusion effect, the, you know, almost that influential effect. How big do you think the benefits of migration are? Well, I, I think that migration could be the key to economic development that we haven't, that we haven't discovered yet. I think that when people move across borders and move across regions, they bring with them all this know-how and best practice and technology that really reflects in how firms become more productive, how new firms appear, how sectors become more productive as a whole, how countries grow in general. We have a bunch of, of institutions that allow us to, to make sure that if I send you money, it's going to get to you. And that also like protecting us from illicit flows. But when it comes to migration, there's nothing much, right? Each country has its own regulation, a lot of it driven by politicians and political views and not so much by economics or, or actual facts. And now the world is kind of moving with the Global Compact for Migration, the Global Compact for Refugees, to think a little bit about how can we collaborate on these in 2023, <laughs> right? After migration started like, you know, 60,000 years ago. So, so I think that migration has a huge potential, but I think that, that we are keeping ourselves from that potential, just to put a number on it, Michael Clemens, who is a colleague and a mentor who I really respect and admire, he's a professor now at George Mason University. He has written a paper showing that if, if people were actually to move freely across borders, we would enjoy from an increasing GDP that, that could be of trillions of dollars. <laughs> trillions of dollars, right? Almost automatically. And, and, the, and the logic for this is, is that it's very intuitive. Like, not, you know, talent is global. And if we keep people from moving to the place where they can reach their full potential, given their talent, then we're all paying for that. We're all keeping the cake small. Whereas if people actually can move, the cake will continue to grow. But we're so focused on who's eating the slice of the cake instead of the size of the cake that we haven't been able to coordinate on, on how to make these flows much beneficial for all of us. So very early on in our conversation, you said that it's really important that people are with each other, that the knowledge transfer happens when you work with somebody. But I suppose the counter to that is, you know, within the era of Zoom and, and fantastic technology where we can talk to each other wherever we are, is it not possible to do it using technological means or do you have to be in the same country, in the same room as that other person? Well, that, that's a fascinating question. I think that um, the, the, the boring answer is like, you know, we still need more research to, to figure exactly how, how that trade-off could work. But, but my, you know, my um, speculation is that there is so much that we can do over Zoom, that there's so much we can do for teams to, 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 to interact in a way that will maximize their potential if they actually don't know each other in person. But I can tell you that I, I do think that 
human mobility, physical mobility is going to continue to be a thing. I think that it's, you know, in, in all the research that I've done and others have done, we, we show that these effects are huge. For instance, we're, we, we just finished a, a study where we're looking at nonstop flights between inventors really um, f- strongly facilitate their ability to work together and come up with new inventions that are like, you know, that, that, that are of higher quality, et cetera. So, so I think a lot of it will stay. And I think the challenge for us as humans, as firms, as an economy is to, to find that sweet spot where we can continue to have the flexibility, but at the same time, figure out how we do the team, the, 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 the team building that we need to facilitate that diversity and those new ideas and, and really take advantage of that. We just recently had on as a guest, Nick Bloom, who was saying that the ultimate model is, you know, two days in the office, three days at home and to stick to that. But the two days is for the, you know, human interaction. But I guess that technology in the meantime might be, you know, the bridge to knowledge diffusion. And I think I agree with that. We like to end our podcast with a few little quick questions. So if you're up for that, let's let's go for that. Sure. You, you're somebody whose identity spans more than one country. You're a world citizen, but where do you feel most at home? Wow, that's a tough one. I think I, I, I feel everywhere where I've been a little bit home. So this, uh, I think I can see home where, where, where you have your people and your and your interests and and your friends. I, I do have. Um, I feel a special connection with Israel, but but I, I think that I. I'm more flexible with the term home. <laughs> yes. <laughs> What's your favorite food? Wow. I definitely will go with Venezuelan food here, arepas and all that. Yeah. Excellent. What makes you most optimistic now, right now? I think that we are seeing a, a, a generation of people who are really, really want to make a difference and really care for the other more than ourselves. And I think that eventually is going to translate into, into changing the rules in the, of the game in a way that will make us all of us better off. And what makes you most pessimistic? Politics. <laughs> Politics in general. If you had not been an economist, what could you have been or like to have been, and, and not just as an engineer? I would have loved to be a politician. Having dissed them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I, I would have loved to be, to be in public service and maybe I will one day, who knows. And what's the one piece of advice that you would give to our listeners? Be, be willing to always challenge what you're reading, always think what's behind this thought, what's behind this opinion. And I think that, that this curiosity is what keeps us like, what keeps life interesting. Well, thank you very much, Danny. It's been great to talk to you. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure. Forward Thinking is a production of the McKinsey Global Institute. Find us online at mckinsey.com MGI or at McKinsey underscore MGI on Twitter. Forward Thinking is hosted by Janet Bush and me, Michael Chewy. Our audio engineer is Colin Moore. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, or review us wherever you get your podcasts.
The opinions expressed by podcast guests are their own and do not reflect the views or opinions of the McKinsey Global Institute. References to specific products, services, or organizations do not constitute any endorsement or recommendation by MGI.